Uh, good morning and happy Father's Day. Uh, this is our second class in our church history uh, series. Uh, today we're going to be talking about Constantine councils and creeds. Uh, and before we get started, uh, we'll pray. Father, uh, we, at, we thank you for allowing us to be here this morning to learn uh, more about the history of the church and in particular um, how you promised to build your church and the gates of hell would prevail against it. And so we uh, are grateful this morning that we could go through these lessons and um, um, get an understanding of your work, uh, your ways and your works uh, in a church historical uh, and kind of compare that to or see where we've been uh, and compare it to where we are and where we're going. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'll be honest, I wasn't uh, particularly um, thrilled about the church history class, and it's not um, that I don't like church history. I love church history. It's just the nature of the limited amount of time we have, it's just impossible to, to go through all the things that you would want to go through in church history, um, all of the lessons, all of the events, uh, and so I think that while I was reading through this, there's uh, something in particular that rung out to me. Um, at the end of the day, uh, yes, we did have to choose, or the authors of the studies had to choose what they would talk about. But at the end of the day, what we're studying is Jesus's work uh, on the earth through his church. And so um, that's very exciting to me. So um, this morning... The main point of the lesson is, through a series of challenges to biblical doctrine, churches would confirm the Bible's teaching on the Trinity and persons of Christ. So we're going through um, the church being persecuted to the church being accepted, and the challenges that would be f what they, the challenges that they faced at that, that time. So the class goals are to explain the circumstances that led to Christianity's favorite status in the Roman Empire to distinguish between the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople and their contributions to the Nicene Creed, <clears throat> to contrast the eras of adoptionism, modalism, and Arianism with orthodox belief, explain the belief between homoousios and homoousios, demonstrate how the hypostatic union divides both Apollinarianism and Nestorianism. So let's start out by saying this. There's some crazy Greek words this morning, and so I'm going to ask you for some grace as I fumble through them. Uh, we're going to get to the heart and the uh, meat of uh, what each thing means, but uh, yeah, these, these words are uh, some tongue twisters, and I barely can speak English, so I struggle with Greek. Um, all right, we ended last week discussing Polycarp, and the nature of many persecutions Christians faced in the first centuries following Jesus' ascension. You'll remember from last week that the Roman Empire was in decline and various forms of persecution by Romans, Roman emperors were in an attempt to cleanse their society from this godless or seditious sect known as Christians. Many were motivated to restore Rome to its former glory, and they saw these Christians as being unwilling to give proper allegiance to Rome and its emperor. Nevertheless, 
we saw that Jesus' words were true. You will be delivered before kings for my name's sake. Yet despite all this regional persecution, the gospel spread. The forces that aimed to oppose Christianity aided in the spread of the good news. But something that also grew during these early centuries was error or false teaching. The rise of false teaching is observed in the pages of Scripture, and sadly it grew through times of persecution. At times, persecution gave occasion for new forms of unbelief. These occasions would spark new controversies in the life of the church as Christian belief made its way through the Roman Empire. These circumstances surround our discussion in today's class where we'll consider Emperor, Constantine's, Emperor Constantine and three, and three ecumenical councils. We refer to an ecumenical council as a gathering of Christians, Christian leaders from the whole Christian world to discuss matters of doctrine and practice. The Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestant churches all recognized the confessions of the first four ecumenical councils. This morning we'll consider what happened as Christians moved from persecuted to favored in the Roman Empire. We'll also examine the opportunities and challenges Christians faced with their new status and in what ways Christian beliefs was clarified and defined against heresy as Jesus continued to build his church according to his promise. So you have the, the, the church coming from being persecuted, killed, things like that, to being favored in the Roman Empire. And so we kinda, we're going to look at what challenges that they faced during that time. From the beginning of the church through, early, through the early 300s, Christians faced persecution that at times was quite severe. And we heard last week that the persecution ebbed and flowed based on location and emperor. Changes were on the horizon for, horizon for Christians. To better control the fledging empire, its territories were divided into regions with an emperor appointed over each region. Sometimes these would go well, and other times they wouldn't. Often this would result in dueling empire, emperors or emperors who would, would recognize the le legitimacy of another. Such was the case between two emperors, Mac Maxentius and Constantine. From 306 to 312, Maxentius ruled the part of the empire that spans modern-day Italy through North Africa. He was known as a prolific builder, and he worked to restore the city of Rome to its former fame and power. However, in 312, Constantine and Maxentius vied for control over western parts of the Roman Empire. Constantine crossed the Alps, heading toward Rome in hopes of defeating Maxentius, who was in Rome. What's notable for our purposes is in the prelude to a defining battle between Constantine and Maxentius, Constantine experienced some type of sign or dream that he interpreted interpreted as a message from the Christian God, saying that in this sign you will conquer, referring to the sign of the cross. Later, Constantine and Maxentius had a battle where Constantine soundly defeated Maxentius for control over a large part of the Roman Empire. Constantine credited his important victory to the Christian God and decided to embrace Christianity. So Constantine had this dream or a sign uh, from what he says is the Christian God, and he gained the, the victory over this guy. And so um, 
Because of that, he embraced the Christian God. Around a year after Constantine's victory, he and the Western emperor, Licinius, made a proclamation known to history as the Edict of Milan that granted toleration for Christians in the West and the East of the empire. Here's what one historian says about this declaration. The letter is noteworthy in several respects. For one thing, it deals not only with Christianity, but with all forms of religious worship practiced in the empire. To assure reverence for the divinity, Licinius wrote, We grant both to Christians and to all men the freedom to follow whatever religion each one wished. Second, it goes beyond toleration and at it goes beyond toleration in a few phrases, a new understanding of religious freedom. Each person should be granted the freedom to give his mind to the religion which he felt was most fitting to himself, because the supreme divinity is to be served with a free mind. The worship of God cannot be coerced. It must be an act of the will and arise out of genuine devotion and piety. Wilkin continues, the philosophical underpinnings of this decree can be found in a Christian author by the name of Lact, Lact, I'm sorry, Lact, Lactantius. In his defense of Christianity, he had argued that Christianity should be tolerated, not because there, were, there are many ways to God, the conventional defense of religion toleration, rather uh, Lactantius believed that coercion is inimical to the nature of religion. He offered a theological rationale for religious freedom rooted in the nature of God. Religion has, has to do uh, with love of God and purity of mind, neither of which can be imposed or coerced. Why should a God love a person who does not feel love in return, he asked. Religion must be voluntary. Nothing he writes requires freedom of the will as religion. This understanding came to, shape latter, came to shape latter Western ideas of religious freedom. So that's what uh, Wilkin wrote on the Edict of Milan. It's difficult to overstate the importance of the Edict of Milan. As a result, Christianity moved from, from a persecuted sect to a favorite religion. An edict by emperors owed much of its logic to a Christian writer. And it was no longer, it was not long after that in 381, the Roman emperor Theodius I declared Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. What would Christians make of this new celebrated status? Certainly we can sympathize with the Christians of that time who would have celebrated such a favorite status. Many saw it as a great blessing of God and fruits from their labors in evangelism. As we will see, there were several benefits of this change, but it would also present new challenges. How well did the emperor understand the Christian belief? How did Christian practice mesh with the affairs of the Roman state? These all were relevant questions amid Christianity's new status in Rome. As Robert Wilkins says, for the ancient Greeks and Romans, Religious was, was an affair of rituals and practices, not doctrines. Christians, however, not only believed in God, 
They also believed that God had created the world, that human beings are made in the image of God, that Christ, the divine son, had become man, suffered, died, and rose from the dead, that at the end of time there would be a general resurrection. In other words, they claimed that certain things were true, and these truths required precise language to say clearly and unambiguously what was meant. So I think about, um, I mean, in our time, you know, we... I think we can, we can look at our society and our culture in America and see almost a transition of Christianity as the acceptable form, that everybody was a Christian, everybody attended church. There was a time where you could even hold political office without being a part of a church, and now we're transitioning into a time when almost the opposite is true. But as we're looking through this, we can kind of parallel the things that were happening at that time compared to what, uh, what is going on today. Through these circumstances, orthodoxy would be clarified for churches, but other lines would be blurred. So again, um, as the Christianity is becoming popular, uh, it, was, um, it, it just made sense to sit down and line out what Christianity, um, what Chris, what Christianity meant what uh, beliefs were set in stone, and what things were opposing, what things that were being taught was, were in opposition to Christianity. In matters of doctrine, Christians had always focused on right belief. The Bible gives us for, formulaic language to speak about God. Consider 1 Corinthians 8 and 6. There is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom all and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Yet in most cultures and contexts, fundamental Christian beliefs are challenged, are challenged. Many have found it necessary to publish measured language to clarify and confirm what the Bible teaches and to reject what the Bible does not teach. We'll now consider the three most consequential ecumenical councils that produce three creeds Christians around the world affirm today. So we, we can kind of see from these three councils how the things that we teach and believe uh, and practice um, basically were established and lined out during that time. Uh, are you following me right now? So the church was persecuted. The church uh, through... I mean, circumstances um, became the acceptable religion. Um, so now you have all these people who are teaching maybe different things, maybe similar things, and um, there, there came a need to sit down and to line out what the Bible actually says versus what the Bible does not say and what's anti-biblical. <clears throat> Why these things are important. As we consider this, in the 2016 survey, 71% of American evangelicals agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. Are all American evangelicals believing something new? Or has the church dealt with disbelief before? Disbelief, God created Jesus, was the first issue that prompted an ecumenical council. The early church grappled with two biblical truths. One, the belief in one God, 
monotheism, and two, the belief in Jesus' divinity. On these two matters, the early churches faced an apparent problem. How is there one God, and yet the Father and Son are God? Over time, multiple explanations emerged. And now, with the favored status of Christianity we that we discussed earlier, these views will be circulated widely, and several churches and sometimes entire regions of the Roman Empire would align themselves with various views. Adoptionism, modalism, and Arianism each tried to offer a solution to the question. Adoptionism is the belief that Mary gave birth to Jesus as a mere man and only later in life, either at his baptism or at his resurrection, did God adopt Jesus as the divine son of God. One of the early church fathers summarized his beliefs, summarized the belief of others this way. Jesus was a mere man, born of a virgin, according to the counsel of the Father. After he had lived indiscriminately with all men and had become preemin preeminently religious, he subsequently, at his baptism in the Jordan River, received Christ. What are some of the problems with disbelief? <laughs> it, introduced it, it reduces Jesus to a mere human, leaving original sin unaddressed. Because of this, Jesus cannot be our substitute. Modalism is the belief that the Father, Son, and Spirit amounted to three different names or modes for the same God. That same church father summarized this belief professed by the modalists. He maintains that the Father is not one person while the Son is another, but that they are one and the same. And he affirms that the Spirit which became incarnate in the Virgin is not different from the Father, but is one and the same. The, popper, the popular analogy of water in its liquid form, ice and steam, as three forms of water is the modalist. It argues for three stages of being or manifestations of one substance. It fails to adequately distinguish between the Father, Son, and Spirit. Instead, modalism holds that God had different modes of appearing. It fails to account for, eternal, for the eternal existence of God as Father, Son, and Spirit. As it fails to account for the three persons of God, modalism implies that God the Father suffered on the cross, a view known as, uh, <laughs> I said this last time, as, uh, we won't even talk about the view, it doesn't matter. All right, as it fails to account for the three persons in uh, God, modalism implies that God the Father suffered on the cross. Further modalism, fail, further, modalism fails to account for the interaction between Father, Son, and Spirit. For these reasons and more, modalism is a serious heresy and is still present today, today in so-called denominations such as oneness Pentecostalism. We're kind of familiar with that, uh, <laughs> with that denomination as we bought this church from them. All right. Um, the controversy over Arianism was perhaps the greatest theological controversy in the history of Christianity. 
named after one of its early proponents, Arius, Arianism holds that there was a time when the sun did not exist, meaning that Jesus is a creature, I'm sorry, Jesus is a creature of God. Arius taught that God the Father created the Son. He held that there was a time when the Son did not exist and that the Son was subordinate to the Father. Amidst such teaching, Arius and his followers sought to maintain monotheism. Arius also proved to be very persuasive. Historians say that Arius was an exceptional marketer. He said his theology to song and it said half of Alexandria was singing, there was a time when the sun was not. What are the implications of Arianism? By arguing that the sun was a created being, the sun is not truly God. Worshiping Jesus, then, is idolatry. Because if this was true, a being God created is worshiped rather than God himself. It results in polytheism if both the Father and Son are held to be God, but distinct beings or essences, two gods are worshipped as opposed to one. Arianism unwarily divides and subordinates the Father and the Son. It's worth noting these inconsistencies the inconsistencies of Arianism are still present in today, today in Jehovah's Witnesses. With teachings spreading among churches throughout the empire, Emperor Constantine saw the intense theological dispute as a source of political disunity in the empire. So a politician used uh, Christian uh, arguing as a way uh, to advance politics. That's that's nothing new. <laughs> um, Constantine called the church together for a council at the city of Nicaea, near modern-day Istanbul, Turkey. The council was composed of around 250 bishops. Debate and discussion would take months, but ultimately the first Nicene Creed would be constructed against all three of the heresies we've mentioned. But its primary target would be Arianism, as it has the largest following among the Roman Empire. The Nicene Creed in 325 contains three articles of faith as well as four explicit condemnation of Arian views. First article, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty Maker of all things seen and unseen. Second article, and we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten from the Father, only begotten, that is, from the substance of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things in heaven and on earth came into being, who on account of us human beings and our salvation came down and took flesh. Becoming a human being, he suffered and rose again on the third day, ascended into heaven, and will come again to judge both the living and the dead. Third article, and we believe in the Holy Spirit, 
four condemnations. As for those who say, say that, first, there was a time when he was not, and second, before being, he was not, and third, he came into existence out of nothing, or fourth, who declared that the Son of God is of a different substance or nature, or is subject to alteration or change, the Catholic and Apostolic Church condemns them. We can see that the heresies of adoptionism and modalism, we can see the heresies of, of adoptionism and modalism rejected. The various heresies of Arianism were clearly and repeatedly condemned as if the three articles weren't clear enough. The four condemnations all aimed at Arianism. So the church at, at this uh, council came up with this creed uh, lining out and identifying what they believed but also what teaching they condemned based on the uh, prominent heresy at that time. <clears throat> Positively, the Nicene Creed asserts that Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, is of the same substance as the Father. Both are God. The Greek word here is homoousios. It's translated of the same substance. The term was used instead of homoousios, homo <laughs> meaning of like substance. By exercising such care and attention, the creed affirms that the divine person of Jesus Christ eternally existed, meaning he was not made. Further, it affirms that this eternally existent son took on flesh in the incarnation. As with all sound creeds and confessions, Nicaea did not invent the doctrine that Jesus was God. Christians believed this well before Nicaea. So I'm, I think that's important to line out. They did, this doctrine wasn't created or invented during this council. They just lined out or written out in, a cre in creed form what um, the Christians had believed all along. Um, lining out what they had believed all along, and again, identifying and calling out uh, the errors and heresies of that day. All right. The influence of Arianism didn't subside after the first council, so it still persisted even after they sat down and identified, this is what we believe, Arianism is a lie. <clears throat> Though officially the Nicene Consensus of 325 remained unquestioned, debates about Arianism continued. A major challenge stemmed from the different language groups in the Roman Empire. The Latin-speaking West was, at, at, was often at odds with the Greek-speaking East. This is one reason councils took so long to form and deliberate. It took time to understand what was behind any one issue, and it took more time to have nuanced discussions. All this was further complicated by Constantine, who in 332 restored Arius as bishop. So Constantine, again, uh, maybe perhaps politically motivated, restored this bishop who, um, who had already been called out to be teaching heresy, restore, restored him as a bishop. Through the influence of Asibius of Nicomedia and others in proximity to the court, 
Arius' teaching was viewed more favorably in parts of the empire. Arius even appealed successfully to Eusebius to help silence dissenters. Constantine died in 337. He planned for the empire to be ruled as a to be ruled again, but uh, he wanted to split up into different parts and have different rulers over the empire. But the army refused to comply with Constantine's wishes, resulted in Constantine's three sons being taking parts of the empire amid controversy. They struggled to relate to one another, and this political turmoil resulted in the ecclesiastical confusion. So you had three different people ruling the empires, and of course they had their guy and their, their teachings. And so not only did you have the church um, fighting, discussing these things, but uh, it became a political thing where, I mean, as we see the emperor kind of used the church and played the, the emperors or the rulers at that time uh, seemingly used the church as pawns in their political schemes. Emperor Constantine's son and successor in the East, Constantius, strongly advocated for Homoousios' position, and this movement grew dramatically. Through his and uh, Eusebius' influence, it's possible that most of the Roman Empire could have settled on the Homoousios, and if you're not following, that's, or if it's hard to follow, that's the, um, that's the heresy. Uh, so... It's possible that most of the Roman, the Roman Empire could have settled on the heresy. Athanius, well, I'm sorry, Athan, Athanius, Athanasius, I'm sorry, Athanasius, an ardent defender, defender of 325 Nicene Orthodoxy, which was the creed that we read earlier, was exiled five times for a total of 17 years after the Council of Nicaea due to his support of the Homoousios, uh, due to his support of Homoousios, which is the correct teaching. The swell of Arian theology after Nicaea grew so strong, some later coined the phrase Athanasius contra mundum, which is Athanasius against the world. In his exile, Athanasius was able to cultivate support for the Nicene formula in the West. As Athanasius' influence grew, things would change in the east with the death of Eusebius of Nicomedia, now Constantinople. Some bishops would take a more conciliatory view and work for an end to the conflict. However, the empire was still divided. Constantius ruling the east while his brother Constans gained sole authority of the western providences in 340. Debate, debate, I'm sorry, debate among bishops would continue, but Athanasius' defense would steadily gain around the East. The emperor of the East followed uh, Constantius in 361, sought to bring a pagan revival, but his, reign was short, but his reign was short, and he died in 363. The empress later from 364 to 378, the East was ruled by Valians who showed favoritism to Arianism. But by this time, the churches, by this time in the churches, the tide was running in the direction of the Nicene cause. Uh, 
respect for uh, Athanasius, uh, for the Athanasius view had grown, and it was time for him to pass the mantle to the Cappadocian fathers who would further explicate Nicene Orthodoxy. That's the uh, Basil Bishop. That's Bishop Basil Gregory uh, of uh, Gregory Nazanzian and Gregory Bishop of uh, Nyssa. All right. So we that's basically was a rundown of the battle that day for the the two different um, uh, teachings, the Nicene Creed and the um, the Arian Heresy. Among the growth of Arianism, among the growth of Arianism after the Council of Nicaea, another view had gained ground as well. Uh, that of the Numatachi or Spirit Fathers. These teachers de de denied that the Holy Spirit was God. So in addition to stumping out Arianism, uh, the Cappadocians would also argue for the deity of the spirit. So not only were they trying to get rid of the Arianism view, but now they also had to fight about uh, whether the Holy Spirit was uh, divine. <clears throat> After a decade of tumult among emperors and uncertainty for Orthodox Christian beliefs throughout the empire, the tide was running steadily toward Nicene Orthodoxy. And all that was lacking was an emperor in the east to call the council. Theodosius I, who like Constantine before, became sole emperor of the empire, called the council to Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul. The creed at Constantinople further clarified the 325 creed in its view. Confirming the work of the prior council, the Nicene Creed, this creed, written 56 years after the first, is often referred to as the Nicene Creed. We believe, this is the creed, we believe in one God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of the Father. From thence he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeded from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of, this, of the world to come. Amen. As we can see, 
This adopted creed confirmed the Nicene Orthodoxy of 325 while aiming to improve upon its consensus. The heresy of Arianism again rejected, and it affirmed that the Holy Spirit is to be worshipped with the Father and the Son. He is God, rejecting the heresy of the spirit fighters. So what lessons can we draw from this early controversy? The ascendancy of Christianity in the Roman Empire led to greater acceptance for Christian beliefs while also magnifying problems within the church. It is difficult to determine the motives of emperors in promoting various strands of Christian beliefs or various heresies. However, what remains from these conflicts is an enduring statement of Christian belief. Building on the formulaic language of the Bible and the work of the early pastors, we have a statement of Christian orthodoxy that's been affirmed for centuries. Ours is the same faith in many ways. We owe this historical certainty to the toleration and celebration of Christianity in the late Roman Empire. So, with the Nicene Creed adopted by most churches in the empire, the question turned to the person of Christ. How is Jesus both God and man? Nicaea affirmed that Jesus was God. Now the question is, how is Jesus also man? <laughs> As the case with Arianism, so too became the case with arguing for Jesus' humanity. Rival school, schools of thought emerged as bishops and churches sought to clarify the faith. What emerged in this controversy were two different ways of thinking about how Jesus was both God and man. Two schools of thought emerged associated with two cities in the Roman Empire. To put matters simply, the Alexandrians emphasized Jesus' divinity and the unity of the divine nature of Christ. The Antiochians emphasized Jesus' humanity and distinct, distinction of human and divine natures of Christ. Both, as we will see, had their attendant difficulties. The Alexandrian school emphasized the unity of the divine and human nature of Jesus. But one strand of thought emerged among the Alexandrians that would pose problems. Named after Apollinarius of Laodicea. Apollinarianism holds that Jesus had one nature with a divine mind and human body. So no human mind. The tendencies for the Apollinarians were to emphasize Jesus' divinity over his humanity. The problems that followed was if Jesus wasn't fully human, then how, would, how could he redeem mankind? As famously articulated, uh, what has not been assumed has not been healed. But what is united to the Godhead is also saved. On the other hand, Antioche the Antiochian school of thought emphasized the distinction between human and divine nature in Jesus. Within this school, Nestorianism emerged 
Its adherents argued that Jesus had two separate and distinct natures, human and divine. This system of thought was named after Nestorius, Bishop of Constantinople. Yet many emphasized these distinctions so much that it essentially treated Jesus as two separate people. Nestorius passionately rejected calling Mary the the Theotokosis, did I say that right? What he said. <laughs> which uh, defi- which uh, breaks down as the mother of God. And instead insisted on calling her Christokokos. There you go. <laughs> I love having a, uh, somebody who studied Greek as a friend. Uh, so what that meant is uh, the mother of Christ. So emphasizing the distinction of Jesus' human and divine natures. Here in the story is, saw mother of God as implying either Arianism, which is the son is a creature born of a woman, or Apollinarianism, the manhood of Jesus, was completed by the presence of this world. However, in response to Nestorius and his objections over mother of God, Cyril said, if Mary is not, strictly speaking, the mother of God, then the one who was born from her is not, strictly speaking, God. Though not discussed in detail here, Nestorianism was condemned at the Council of Ephesus in 431. In the years after the, con- the Council of Constantinople and before the Council of Chalcedon, debates grew among churches. Now 80 years after Nicene Orthodoxy was settled at Constantinople, a new council was called in 481 and was attended by about 500 bishops. The confession from the Council of Chalcedon, 425, reads, Following the Holy Fathers, we confess with one voice that the one and only Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is perfect in Godhead and perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, and that he has a rational soul and, a rational soul and body. He is of one substance, homoousios, with the Father as God, and he is of one substance, homoousios, with us as man. He is like us in all things except sin. He was begotten of the Father before the ages of God, but in these last days and for our salvation, he was born of of Mary the Virgin, the mother of God, as man. This one and the same with Christ, this one and the same Christ's son, Lord, only begotten, is made known in two natures which which exist without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures is in no way taken away by their union, but rather the distinctive properties of each nature are preserved. Both natures unite into one person and one hypothesis, that is, substance. 
They are not separated or divided into two persons, but they form one and the same Son, only begotten God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets of old have spoken concerning him, as the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and as the creeds of the Father has delivered to us. Here, Apollinarianism and Nestorianism are rejected as heresy. The hypostatic union is explained and affirmed. The hypostatic union is the joining of the divine and the human natures in one person of Jesus. What this means is that the person of Jesus has two complete natures, one truly human and one truly divine. Yet Jesus is not two persons. He is one person. In Jesus' earthly ministry, we observe the unity of these two natures in Jesus' person and work. What is true of one nature is true of the person. Jesus was tired according to the human nature. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. I'm sorry. Jesus raised Lazarus to life according to his divine nature. Consider what are the dangers of reducing Jesus' humanity. If Jesus isn't truly human, he can't be a human substitute, and he can't be humanity's representative. On the other hand, consider the dangers of reducing Jesus' divinity. He is not a perfect divine sacrifice. Apart from his divine nature, he can't fully satisfy the wrath of God. The Council of Chalcedon marked one of the first great splits within Christianity. Unlike the Nicene Creed that would be affirmed by the majority of the Christian world by 381, the Chalcedonian controversy would last for more than 200 years. Egyptian Copts, Syrian and Ethiopian Orthodox, and some other traditions rejected the doctrine of Chalcedon. That is, they rejected the hypostatic union as described by the Chalcedonian Creed. So in conclusion, confessions play an important role in the church. 